we're going to turn to Romans 7. And some of you have been itching for this text. I'm about to read a passage where Paul is going to describe an inner conflict, an epic tension that happens inside of the inner being of a divided person where there seem to be two desires locked in a nonstop battle for dominance. And as I read this passage, you're going to be thinking, Paul's been reading my mail. Paul's been reading my journal. And that is the whole point. We listen in now, Romans chapter 7. We left off last week, verse 12. So here's verse 13. Paul says, Did that which is good then bring death to me? Just hold your finger there. Last Sunday, Paul had said, the law is good, the law is spiritual, the law is righteous, but he said, I was alive before the law came, and then when the commandment came, sin came alive in me and I died. So he's, he's anticipating another one of these pushbacks. Wait a minute, Paul, are you saying that the law causes death? And so he says, did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. And now Paul begins to describe this epic struggle. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. I do not do what I want but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. This is a lot of doo-doo, okay? A lot of doo-doo going on here. I do not do what I, what I don't want to do, I keep on doing. For if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So that I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. One of the very famous passages in Romans, especially that verse 19, just look at verse 19. This is sort of the captures the whole thing. I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. That is like a one sentence description of my Labrador retriever, all right, right there. (laughs) Good and evil locked in an epic, she wants to make me so happy, but she keeps on doing things that make me unhappy. This dog, on Friday, we came home, this dog had eaten an entire box of raisins, okay? Now, see that face? Look at that face, okay? Now, the good news is they were organic raisins, okay? 
So that, that, that's the, that is the remains of the box. This dog ate an entire box of raisins and the wrapper and three quarters of the cardboard, okay? The bad news is raisins, did you know this, are extremely toxic for dogs. And I did not know that. So my dog spent the weekend in the ER, all right? And there I am reflecting on Romans 7, and I get the bill, $1,000. And so Adam had a divided moment. $1,000? I, I looked at my wife, who was crying, and I'm like, this dog is not worth $1,000 to me. I had a tension, okay? Anyway... We, here's what we have. We have a divided human. And Paul goes as far as to describe it as two eyes. Did you notice that? There's the eye that wants to do good. There's the eye that loves God. There's the eye that is trying to obey God's law. But there's another eye. There's this other eye that's fighting tension, struggle. And what happens is the Christian, we read that and we're like, that sounds like my life. <laughs> Paul's been reading my journal, literally. Now, what I'm going to do this morning is I'm about to break a fundamental rule of preaching. I'm going to introduce you to a problem that you did not have before you came in here, which you should never do as a preacher, but I have my reasons for doing this. What you don't realize is there's actually a massive debate about this passage, how to interpret it. And scholars are split right down. I mean, they're just evenly split. And, and the debate is this. Is this passage, what you just read, is this a description of Paul the Christian? Or is this a description of Paul the pre-Christian? Or another way that you could ask the question is, is, this, is Paul describing the life of a believer, someone who's born again, or the word we use is the word regenerate, someone who's been given a new heart that beats for Christ, whose affections have been changed? Is that the person Paul's describing? Or is Paul describing someone who's unregenerate with that old stubborn heart that has not been transformed yet? And as I said, like great Scott, like if you, t if you were to make a list of the top five people that you respect as biblical scholars, they're probably split right down the middle on this. Now I'm going to tell you where I come down on this, but not right away. All right. I'm going to make you sit in the tension for just a minute. And the reason I'm going to make you sit in the tension is that I need you to see in the text why this is such a debate. Okay. So look back at your Bible. Many scholars think Paul couldn't possibly be describing a believer. And they have really strong arguments. For example, Paul describes this I as being sold under sin. Do you see that in verse 14? Sold under sin. How could this be a believer when he just spent the entirety of chapter 6 saying that we're no longer slaves to sin, we're now slaves to righteousness? So how can he turn around in seven and describe us a believer is sold under sin? Or how could a believer express such a defeatist experience in their struggle? Is this really the description of the Christian life? Constantly, constantly, constantly failing in my fight against sin? 
total defeat? How could that possibly be a description of a believer? And if this is a believer in verse chapter seven, why is there such a stark contrast when Paul turns the page on chapter eight, where suddenly we, get, we know we get a description of the Christian life and it's a completely different description, which we're gonna get to seven years from now. But anyway, the point is, well, how, how, could, how could it be a believer there, but then such a massive transition into chapter eight, which we know is a description of a believer? But many scholars believe Paul couldn't possibly be describing an unbeliever. And they have really strong arguments. For example, there is a really stark shift into the present tense in verse 14. Will you look at your Bible? Paul's been in the past tense all the way up to this moment. And suddenly in verse 14, he switches to the present tense and it's very strong. He says, we know you and I, we, you and I, you Roman Christians and me, we know the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh. And from then on, he's in the present tense. The most natural reading of this would be to say, Paul is at the very least describing his current experience, or he's inviting the Roman Christians to think of their current experience. Also, this I expresses genuine delight in the law, genuine love for the law of God, a genuine desire to please God, This person loves God, loves God's law. Whereas we've already seen that the flesh prior to becoming a believer is hostile to God. It doesn't love God's law. So how could Paul be describing an unbeliever? Not only that, this I admits that he's no longer a sinner. An unbeliever would never diagnose her own sin with this kind of remorse. An unbeliever would not typically cry out, oh God, deliver me, wretched person that I am. That does not sound like an unbeliever. That sounds like a believer who's struggling. And not only that, even immature believers, they tend to be overconfident, unaware of the depths of the depravity of their hearts. So this doesn't even seem to be an immature believer. This sounds like a really mature believer. And then finally, this argument's not exegetical as much as it is existential. And that is that believers throughout the centuries, when they've read Romans 7, they've thought, this is my life. Finally, I'm reading somebody who understands my struggle and it's been a source of great hope and comfort myself included. So which is it? I'm going to tell you where I come down on this in just a minute. But first, what I want you to realize is whatever view you take, it doesn't change the overall meaning of Romans 7. So we could be wrong about this and still interpret Romans 7 correctly because Paul's point in Romans 7 is to say, look, the law is good, but I'm the problem. He says it over and over. Verse 14, the law is spiritual. I'm of the flesh. The law is good, but I'm the problem. If that, that could be even a description for an unbeliever. It could be a believer or an unbeliever. He says, if I I don't do what I want, I, I agree that the law is good. The law is good. I'm the problem. Verse 22, I delight in the law of God in my inner being. The law is good. I'm the problem. So here's what I, here's here's the view that I take. I do believe that Paul is describing an aspect of the Christian experience, okay? This is the experience of a believer, but with a very significant caveat. It's actually an omission, There is a strange 
an obvious absence of any mention of the Holy Spirit in the passage that we just read. Did you notice that? No Holy Spirit at all, which is odd because in verse six, Paul had described being released from the law and being transferred into the new Christian life, which is a life where we follow in the way of the spirit, verse six. And then the second he turns to verse seven, he completely ignores any mention of the Holy Spirit all the way until he gets to chapter eight. And I think Paul had a reason for that. I think his reason was persuasive. I think Paul wanted Christian believers to live in the tension that still exists in our life with our new desires put there by Christ when we were saved, but that old indwelling sin that's fighting to encourage Roman Christians and River West Christians to move forward after you get the full impact of chapter seven, move into chapter eight into the new life that is yours. But before you can really appreciate it, you have to sit for a while and you have to soak in the gnarly juices of Romans seven. All right. Did I just say that? I did. Okay. You got to stay there. You got to feel the tension. You have to come to terms with the fact without God's intervention by his Holy Spirit, even as a believer, this is a fight that I will not win. This is a fight I won't win. So here's what I'm gonna do this morning. I'm gonna help you with three observations. I'm gonna call these three words of advice for the struggle. I want this to be really practical. So you might wanna write these down, take them with you. Hopefully these will help you throughout your Christian life. Here is word of advice number one. Don't be discouraged to discover deeper and deeper pockets of sin as you grow in Christ, because you will discover them. You will, I promise you. Don't be discouraged. Have you ever heard the old adage, the more I learn, the less I know? Have you ever heard that? The more I learn, the less I know. You know what that means. It means when I, the more I learn something, all that really happens is my mind is opened up to all the things that I didn't know, that I didn't know I needed to know. Paul's doing a very similar thing here. What Paul is doing in Romans 7 is he's saying, actually, the more you grow in Christ, what will happen is you will become more and more spiritually discerning to the point where you'll see for the first time pockets of sinfulness that you didn't even know were there before. And you'll see them and discover them precisely because you are growing in Christ. I wrote it down like this. The more you become holy, the less holy you will feel. Because you are becoming more holy as you're growing in Christ. If the spirit of God is at work, you're becoming more holy. But you know what's weird? The more holy you become, the less holy you feel. That's why Paul, at the end of his life, described himself as the chief of sinners, Right? The principle is stated in verse 21. Just look there so you can see I'm getting this from the Bible. I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. Paul is saying, the more I long to do good, the more evil comes at me. Evil is close at hand. And that statement is a recap of this inner struggle Paul's described. This constant tension. 
Look back now and I'll read through it and just let you see it one more time. Verse 14, we know that the law is spiritual, but I'm of the flesh, sold under sin. I don't understand myself. I don't understand my actions. I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do not do what I want, I agree with the law that it's good. So now it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. This just does not sound like an unbeliever. This is a person who loves God's law, is fighting, struggling, frustrated for sure, maybe getting discouraged, but this person wants to please God and they're fighting to do it. For I know, verse 18, that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what's right, but not the ability to carry it out. I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Paul is coming to terms with this dual nature that we live with while we wait for Jesus to return and finish what he started. It's like the already, not yet. I'm already in Christ. I'm a new person. I'm a new creation. I have a new heart. And yet, something's not completed. I'm waiting for that day when Jesus will return and finish what he started. And in that in-between age, I live with indwelling sin, still hiding in there, still lurking in there. And lest I minimize the influence of that other I, that other Adam, he will pop up right in the moment when I want to do good the most. And he will fight me. He will fight me. When I was in high school, my senior year, I read as a part of my advanced literature class, The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Does that book sound familiar? We all know the title of that book. How many of you actually read that book? Just be honest, raise your hand. Okay, it's actually a little short little book. It's a very powerful book written by Robert Louis Stevenson. And if you, you basically know the story, but if not, I'll recap it. Dr. Jekyll is a very upstanding citizen who as his life progresses, he becomes more and more frustrated about this fight that he feels between good and evil that's always at work in him, preventing him from making progress in his life. He described himself as an incongruous compound of good and bad mixed together. And it made him so frustrated. And he thought, why? Why do I keep struggling? Why, do not I, why don't I advance in my life as a noble human being? And Dr. Jekyll thinks, if only those two eyes could be housed in separate identities. And he's a chemist. So he develops a potion and the potion allows the very thing to happen. He drinks the potion, and you know the story. He becomes two people. By day, he is the good Dr. Jekyll, and he's even more good than ever before. But by night, he becomes Edward Hyde. That word Hyde is from the word hideous or hidden. And Edward Hyde is the most wicked in the book. He describes that when you would encounter Edward Hyde, he was pure selfishness and evil. People would shudder when they would encounter him. Edward Hyde murders people. He beats someone with a stick to death in a dark alley in the course of the book. He is far more wicked than, than Dr. Jekyll had ever imagined. 
when Dr. Jekyll first experiences Edward Hyde, when he first comes out, here's how he describes him. This is now Edward Hyde speaking at night. He says, I knew myself at the first breath of this new life to be much more wicked, tenfold more wicked, sold a slave to original sin. Does that sound familiar? And the thought braced and delighted me like wine. He discovered the two, of, the two were holding each other in tension while they existed in one person. But the second he split them apart, he saw the extremes. Now you say, why are you driving this home, pastor? Here's why. Because you could get discouraged. You could get discouraged. You're, you're, you're struggling. You're following Jesus. And sometimes you feel like you make progress, but then you get to a place in your Christian life where you're like, I am right back struggling with the same thing I was struggling with five years ago. It has reared its ugly head again. And every time I think I'm making, every time I want to do right, there it is right there. And you know what can happen sometimes, for being honest? It can cause people to question, am I even a Christian? Like, do I actually love Jesus? Can I tell you something, folks? In a moment of pure vulnerability, I've wondered that points in my life. This is me, your pastor, saying there's moments where when I come to see the true stuff that's going on in this heart, not only the things that I do, but sometimes the things that I think, the attitudes that I entertain, the jealousy, the, the Adam kingdom building, sometimes I think, why, why is my love for God so weak? And I have moments where I'm like, Lord, it's discouraging. And so you read Romans 7, and you realize, you know what? I'm in good company. If you've wondered that, if you've wondered what's wrong with me, can I make you a promise? The person sitting next to you has wondered that as well. Amen? Amen? We need that encouragement. I heard a scholar say, my primary reason that I don't think this is a believer is that it encourages worm theology. He said, I don't like this because I don't like the idea of Christians walking around going, I'm a worm, I'm a wretch, I'm horrible, woe is me, I'm a terrible human being. And um, you know what? My problem with that is, I actually don't think that's our problem in evangelical Christianity. I actually think in evangelical Christianity, a little bit more humility would actually go a long way for us, first of all. But here's the real reason I don't think that's a problem. We need to be a church where we're vulnerable enough to say to people, I'm really struggling right now and not be afraid. Not think this person's gonna look down on me. They're gonna question my salvation. They're not gonna invite me to dinner next Sunday. Like we gotta be a place where I can tell you what I'm struggling with and you can tell me and then we spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Amen? Amen. Okay. There it is. Practical advice number two. This one, before I put it up, what I'm about to say is going to shock you. You're going to question my sanity. All right. You're going to, some of you might want to send me an email. Don't send me an email right away. Don't send me an email right now. Wait till tomorrow. Okay. Here is piece of advice. Number two, stop trying to keep the law. 
That's not the point. It's not the point. Stop trying to keep the Mosaic law. That's not the point of Romans 7. And it's not even really the point of the Christian life. If, if someone asks you, what is the primary purpose of the Christian life? And your answer was to keep God's laws. Man, we have sold ourselves short, right? That is not the goal. The goal of the Christian life is so much more than that. Our goal is to love Jesus and honor. There was a group of people who gathered a couple hundred years ago and they asked the question, what is the chief end of man? And they came up with a pretty good answer, right? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. Amen? Amen? So, what, so, so the point of this passage is not for you to go, I gotta try harder, I gotta work harder. Now listen, here's what I'm not saying. Don't send me an email saying that I'm saying this because I'm about to tell you that I'm not saying this, okay? I am not saying to stop caring about sin in your life. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying you're not supposed to grow in sanctification. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, if you do it this way, by trying to keep God's laws, it's not gonna work anyway. It will not work. You keep, you keep trying and trying and, 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 and punishing yourself and focusing on that, you're gonna be just as frustrated next year as you are right now. St. Francis of Assisi had a really evocative phrase that he used to describe himself. I'm about to say this phrase, but don't get offended. I'll explain what it is, okay? He, dis- he referred to his body as brother ass, okay? And that's like a donkey, all right? And here's what, he, here's what he was doing. This is really profound. He said, I feel like I'm always walking around dragging a donkey. <laughs> and every time I want to go somewhere or do something for God, that donkey digs in its heels, Brother ass, all right? I use this with my twin brother. It goes really well. But anyway, <laughs> not the point. The point is, here's what Assisi did. Francis Assisi said, so what I did in my, when I was more of an immature Christian is I, he, he lived a life of asceticism. He said, I starved that donkey. I abused that donkey. I neglected that. He was like, the way forward is to focus on starving the other eye. Neglect it, beat it, abuse it, don't feed it. And he got to the end of his life and he realized, I've made absolutely no progress. And in the process, I actually harmed my physical body that God gave me as a gift to protect and steward. And you say, well, what's the point of this illustration? Here's the point. If you read Romans 7, you think, okay, I'm fighting. Now what I have to do, I have to try harder. Obey, obey. It's never going to work, folks. It will not work. That's the point of Romans 7. You can't on your own, within your own person, solve this problem. What I'm going to do is pull back now and show you where I'm getting this from the text. Remember Romans 7 verse 6, we just look at it real quick in your Bible. We'll put it up here. Romans 7, 6, Paul has said early on in the chapter, leave 6 up, Mark, but Paul has said in verse 4, he said, first you have to die to the law so that you can marry Christ. 
We have to die to the law before we can remarry. And when we remarry, now we can actually bear fruit for God. I can't bear fruit for God because I'm, if I'm still married to the law. In fact, Paul would say the Mosaic law was for a point in Israel's history, a, a one people group, a political group, and all of those commandments were for them and their point. But now in the church, in the new age, we're no longer under the law, we're under grace. The law is a moral guide for us and there's wisdom there, but we're not obligated to, we're not obligated to follow it the way, the way the Israelites were. We're set free now, married to Christ. And then he says it again, we're released from the law, having died to that that held us captive. The law's holding you captive. And why? So that we can serve in a new way of the spirit. And then what Paul does, and from then from seven on, is he says, he, he defends everything he said. He said, all the law does is it defines sin, it aggravates sin, it stirs it up in you, but it actually doesn't have the power to change your desires. And by the time he gets to the end of the chapter, he says, even when you're a believer, if you're spending your energy focused on obeying the law, you're just going to stumble into futility. And all of this, Paul, is leading to chapter 8. So will you look at your Bible now? Let me just show you where we're going in September. I'm so excited. We're going to preach this thing. It's going to be amazing. Look at the change of language. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in your flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Do you see that? Jesus has fulfilled the law in us, for us. You don't have to do it. Jesus did it on your behalf. What do you have to do? Walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So you say, what are you saying, pastor? Summarize what you're saying in one sentence because that was a really long moment and I'm a little bit confused. All right, I'll do my best. Here's what I'm saying. Your goal as a Christian is to turn your heart towards Jesus Keep in step with his Holy Spirit. Love him with all of his heart. Worship him. Fuel that part of your soul that loves God by reading the scriptures, worshiping on Sunday morning. Get in community. Follow God's Holy Spirit and you will discover that your affections will begin to change and you will begin to do the very things the law always asked of you. But you're not even trying to obey the law. You're just trying to love Jesus and know him. Amen? Amen. Okay, last word of advice. And then this one's just gonna take a moment. Anchor your present hope on your future liberation. Don't get discouraged as you discover deeper sin. Stop trying to just keep the law. That's not the point. Here's what you do. Anchor your present hope on your future liberation. Where am I getting that? The last two verses of Romans 7. I'll read into it though, just so you can kind of see. Starting in verse 22, I see in my members 
Another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. And look at this wretched man that I am who will deliver me from this body of death. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Tim Keller calls this, he calls this the dual cry of the Christian. There's like two cries we cry at once. The first is a cry of desperation. I'm so frustrated. I feel like I keep struggling. I feel like I keep blowing it. What do you do with that? You just turn to Jesus and cry out, God, rescue me. I'm wretched. But what's the second cry? It's the hopeful cry of deliverance. Who will deliver me? Paul's answer, Jesus Christ. What's Paul talking about? He's saying there's a day coming when Jesus is going to return and he's going to finish what he started and you're going to receive a resurrection body that's no longer divided. That that fight will end. The sinful nature that's still housed in you will be put to death once and for all. And on that day, there will be no more sin, no more tears, no more brokenness. That's the day we look forward to. And here's the point. You could read Romans 7 and you could say, this sounds like a battle that I cannot win. But actually, Romans 7 is a battle that you cannot lose because Jesus already won the war. Amen. He already won the war. And right now you live with a present hope of a future promise. I'm going to be liberated. Why does that matter? Here's why it matters. Every time you feel temptation towards sin, remember this. That's actually not who I really am. I know this. Why do I know this? Because Jesus promised me I'm going to get a new resurrection body where that temptation will no longer live. It won't even be on my mind. And you, I want you to live with that right now. The future is so real, it's invaded your present. And it should guide your heart and your affections and the way you live. The battle's been won, River West. Perhaps you're still struggling this morning. I'm with you. I love you. I'm praying for you. You're not alone. Listen to me. If you are struggling and you feel defeated and you're questioning your salvation, you are not alone. And not only that, you're in the right place. We love you, but don't give up hope. Build your now on that future promise. And here's what we're going to do. We're just going to collapse into worship just like Paul did. We're going to take communion this morning. So I'm going to invite the worship team to come. And here's what I want you to do this morning. As you're going to that table, will you just collapse into worship? Just that moment, oh, wretched person that I am. Just take that to Jesus. I mean, don't you realize that's the whole purpose of the meal is that Jesus died for that sin once and for all. Just take it, take it to the table. But then don't just, don't just collapse into that part. Then worship and say, God, you will deliver me. I know it. The promise is secured in your resurrection. Pray those two things as we worship this morning. I'm going to pray for you right now. Would you bow your heads with me and let's pray. Heavenly Father, it's a very, very important, very complex passage. And yet we read it. And it's so helpful. It explains so much. It helps us understand the struggle we're in. 
and it encourages us to keep going, but not on our own. Left to our own devices, we would lose that battle, but we have your spirit living in us. We embrace that truth this morning. So spirit of Jesus, would you fill us today? Would you crowd out competing desires, distractions, anything right now that's holding us in bondage? Would you break the chains, we pray? Spirit of Jesus, break the chains in this room this morning. Someone who came in in shackles, I pray they would leave today free. And I prayed in the name of Jesus. There are also people who came in resisting you, Jesus. People who came in with cold, hardened hearts. I pray that you would change those hearts this morning. Remove hearts of stone in this room and replace them with hearts of flesh that beat for Jesus, I pray. If that's you this morning and you feel the spirit of God at work in you, you can cooperate by just praying, Jesus, I believe what I'm hearing. I believe you're king. I believe you're savior. I believe you died for my sins and you rose again. I want to follow you. Would you create in me a a clean heart this morning? Just pray that prayer and you will become a Christian today. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. We love you, Lord. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Everyone said, amen.